Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us to, for a new series, which is part of our 10 classes that we have open to the public during uh, summer's month this year. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. This is, yeah, we started some of them last week and now um, are starting a couple of new ones this week. So this is Understanding Lamentations with Dr. Adele Berlin. Uh, so Dr. Berlin is Professor Emerita of Biblical Studies at the University of Maryland. Her interests lie primarily in the literary nature of the Hebrew Bible and in biblical interpretation through the ages. An interpreter herself, Professor Berlin has written several commentaries, included, including on the books of Lamentations and Esther. Her commentary on Psalms 120 to 150 will be published in 2023 by the Jewish Publication Society. She co-edited with Mark Brettler, The Jewish Study Bible, and she is now at work on a commentary on, a song, on Song of Songs. In this series, we'll conduct a close reading of the text of Lamentations, Echa, we will focus on the poetry, the significance of Jerusalem's destruction, and the ways it is shown. Uh, and, sorry, the use of gender in the book and ideas of mourning, exile, and return. Um, so thank you so much, Professor Bruin, for teaching this class, and thank you to everyone who has joined us. Um, before we dive in, just a few quick announcements. I'm going to be, uh, throughout the class, or starting just in a moment, uh, and then I'll be offering it again in case people miss it. I'm going to be promoting people to be panelists. That does not mean that you have to present anything. <laughs> it's very low pressure. All it means is that you'll have the ability to turn on your cameras, which we would definitely appreciate being able to see your faces. Um, and you'll be able to raise your hands, to ask questions um, and it, during the times when Professor Berlin is taking questions. If you prefer not to raise your hand, or if you are watching us on Facebook, you're welcome to put your questions in the comments on Facebook or, or the chat on Zoom, and I'm happy to pass those on. Um, and, but do please stay muted when you are not speaking. I think that's about it. So I'm gonna turn it over to Professor Berlin. You can get started. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Chaya. Um, thank you, everyone. I'm not sure who's actually listening to this since I only see a, a few people. Um, on, on my screen through the Zoom. Um, we're going to be reading the book of Lamentations called Eicha in Hebrew. Um, and I've been advised that uh, it's a mixed audience, that not everyone knows Hebrew. So we will finesse uh, the Hebrew and English together. Uh, we'll look at them both. Uh, the text that we'll be using is from Sfarya, uh, and we will use the, the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, and the New Jewish Publication Society translation, uh, which Chaya will put up for you on, on a screen share when I give her the word. Um, let me also tell you that um, there are other translations available on Sparia. One of them is the Koran, which is a very recent one. So you're free on your own to, to take a look at that too. Um, I, I like the idea of comparing translations, but I'm not gonna do a lot of that because I won't have time to do it. Um, uh, you're encouraged to put questions in the chat and I will try to make some time to get to those questions today. If not, Chaya will send me the questions and I will address them next time. Before we get into the text, however, I want to give a little introduction. I could give a long introduction, but I'll try to give a short one here so that we can get to the text pretty quickly. The Book of Lamentations is a collection of poetic laments for the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. This event was without precedent in the history of Israel and we become a turning point in Jewish religious development. The destruction of Jerusalem is the event in which the long narrative from Genesis through Kings culminates, about which the prophets warned, and which leaves its mark on all subsequent literature of the Bible. But Lamentations does not look forward and it does not look back, does not dwell on what went before or will come after. Its gaze is fixed directly on the event itself. There are five chapters in the book, and each chapter presents the destruction from a different perspective. Chapter one focuses on Jerusalem, the destroyed city, pictured in her mourning, her shame, and her desolation. The tone is one of despair, 
depression, degradation, shame, and guilt. The destruction in this chapter is complete and the reader stands among the ruins. Chapter two takes the reader back to the moment of destruction with all its physical and theological force. The picture is full of anger and fury, God's anger at the city and the speaker's anger at God. The chapter focuses on God, the perpetrator of the destruction. The anger of God overshadows the guilt of Jerusalem. Chapter three portrays the process of exile with its alternating moods of despair and hope. The speaker is a lone male, a Job-like figure trying to come to terms with what has happened. His view is personal, but at the same time representative of the people. Chapter four focuses on the people reliving the siege and the suffering that accompanied it, the toll it took on the inhabitants of the city. The chapter paints a picture of utter degradation. Chapter five is the prayer of the Judean remnant, weakened and impoverished, deprived of king and temple, pleading with God not to abandon them forever, hoping that the former relationship between God and Israel will be renewed. The first four chapters are structured as alphabetic acrostics. Uh, there's a reversal of the letters of Pei and Ayin in chapters two, three, and four. And that reflects an alternative order of the alphabet, which is found in some inscriptions dating from several centuries before the destruction. Acrostics are not unique to our book. And those who have studied them have seen them as mnemonic devices, aesthetic devices, and for a way to express completeness, like everything from A to Z, especially if it could never all really be expressed. It is perhaps, it is perhaps a sublime literary touch that the poems of this book, which express the inexpressible, use such a formal and rigid style, whose controlling structure is the very letters that signify and give shape to language. The world order of lamentations has been disrupted. No order exists anymore in the real world. But as if to counteract this chaos, the poet has structured his own linguistic order that he marks out graphically for us by the orderly progression of the letters of the alphabet. Scholars always wanna know who wrote the book, when was it written and why was it written? So let me address some of these uh, issues briefly. Ancient tradition assigns the authorship of biblical books to specific personalities. In the Bible itself, we find ascriptions of Psalms and poems to named individuals like the Psalms of David um, or uh, the, the Proverbs of Solomon. Um, the prophetic books also and Song of Songs. This trend grows even stronger in post-biblical sources. The rabbis assigned authors to all the biblical books, whether or not such authorship was explicitly stated in the biblical text. So for example, the rabbis say Samuel wrote the book of Judges, Ruth and Samuel, and Jeremiah was the author of the book of Kings of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Uh, while the Masoretic text does not have a superscription that says Jeremiah wrote the book, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation and the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation do have superscriptions. In these versions, the book opens with the words, and it came to pass after Israel had gone into captivity and Jerusalem was laid waste, that Jeremiah sat weeping and composed this lament over Jerusalem. The tradition of linking lamentation with Jeremiah is quite ancient and pervasive. The earliest hint is actually in the Bible itself in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 35, 25 says, 
Jeremiah recited laments for Josiah and all the male and female singers said them in their laments for Josiah until today. They became accepted custom in Israel and they were recorded in the laments. That's what it says in Chronicles. So already Jeremiah is connected with the idea of writing laments. Um, according to uh, a long exegetical tradition, the laments, hakinot is the word uh, mentioned in this verse, are none other than the book of Lamentations, which the rabbis also referred to by the word keynote. One cannot be sure that the chronicle, that Chronicles was referring specifically to the book of Lamentations itself, but clearly a biblical tradition con connecting Jeremiah with lament literature exists. Ancient traditions and modern scholars have different reasons for assigning authorship to biblical books. The rabbis, and presumably their forerunners, were interested in showing the divine or sacred nature of the biblical writings. And in order to do this, they linked the books with prophetic figures or with other people who composed under divine inspiration, like David and Solomon and Ezra. Modern scholars approach the question of authorship quite differently. Nothing would delight modern scholars more than knowing who actually wrote certain books, but that goal is largely out of reach. At best, we can ascertain the approximate date the book was written, and sometimes the place and the reason for its composition. So now let's look at the date. Um, unlike some of the other books in the Bible, Lamentations has very little historical information in it. It doesn't even mention uh, the Babylonians by name, although clearly it's referring to a historical event. It doesn't mention kings of Israel by name. Most scholars date Lamentations to a time soon after 586 BCE. That's the time of the destruction. It cannot be earlier, obviously. The question is, how much later might it be? The view that it was written soon after the destruction used to be justified by the fact that the descriptions are so vivid that they must have been composed by eyewitnesses. This, reason, this reasoning, I would say, betrays a simplistic notion of literature. A good poet can convey immediacy, even if he was not present. The depth of feeling that the poem calls forth has nothing to do with its date. In fact, there are both ancient and modern examples of destruction literature composed some years after the event, as well as examples of literature composed during or immediately following them. A modern example is Holocaust literature, much of which post-dates the event by at least 30 years and often longer, and it was not written exclusively by survivors. Even the work of survivors is not all contemporaneous with events. Trauma takes time to find literary expression, so we need not date Lamentations to the period immediately following 586 BCE. Probably the, the most reliable way for dating a biblical book is based on its language, vocabulary, certain syntactic usages, orthography, uh, things like that. Scholars have concluded that the language of Lamentations has features typical of what's called late biblical Hebrew, that is post-exilic Hebrew, making it the book clearly post-exilic, which we could have known even so. On the other hand, the number of late features is not as large as some of the later books in the Bible, like Kohelet or Esther or Ezra and Hemiah or Chronicles. So the language of, of Lamentations falls, statistically speaking, in the transitional stage of Hebrew, roughly the time of Ezekiel or Jonah, both of which probably are to be dated to the 6th century BCE. Um, and our best guess is not later than the year 520 and probably already by 540 
the book was written. So not immediately after the exile, but within a generation or two afterwards. Um, it was written during the exilic period, maybe near the end, as before the return to Israel. As to where it was written, that's impossible to say. The real puzzle is why was it written? Was it written as a liturgical piece for public recitation to commemorate the destruction of the temple? When and where did such commemorations begin to be celebrated? Um, let me just note that while we read the book of Echa on Tisha B'Av, the earliest mention of reading Echa on Tisha B'Av doesn't come until Masechet Sofrim, which was written in the 8th century of the Common Era. Now, that isn't to say that it wasn't being recited on Tisha B'Av before, but when we look in other places in the Talmud about Tisha B'Av, we don't find a record of reading Be'echa. We have other things that are done on that day or not done on that day, but not, not the reading of Echa until some centuries later. So um, we, we don't know exactly when it got attached to Tisha B'Av. Um, there is some evidence, but not a lot, in the Bible of mourning for, for or commemorating the destruction of the first temple. Jeremiah 41.5 records that in the time of Gedaliah, that is shortly after the fall of Jerusalem, 80 men came from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria, that is the former northern kingdom of Israel, with their beards shaved, their garments torn, and gashes on their bodies. In this state of mourning, the men were bringing offerings to the house of the Lord, which had already been destroyed. These men may be among the first mourners of Zion, as Isaiah calls them, but even the Isaiah passage sheds little light on the practice of mourning the temple in the exilic period. We don't know if they recited anything. The evidence from the time of the second temple is somewhat clearer. Zechariah 7.5 and also Zechariah 8.19 mention some fast days it doesn't actually give their dates, and it mentions lament, sephod, in com commemoration of the first temple, proof that mourning for the temple had been institutionalized. But we don't know if the Book of Lamentations or any of its chapters were part of the lamenting. So where does that leave us? We cannot say why the poems and lamentations were composed or why they were collected together. It is clear that the book ultimately gained a liturgical place in the commemoration of the Second Temple, that's later, and it may well have played a similar role in commemorating the First Temple before and during the Second Temple period. Its liturgical use may be the reason that the book was written. It's probably the reason that the book was canonized, included in the biblical canon, and it is more obviously the reason for its current placement within the, the, the Jewish Bible, which is among the Megillot, the five scrolls, all of which are recited liturgically on different occasions throughout the year. Okay, that's my introduction. Um, I'm going to ask Chaya to put up on the screen the text. We'll go to the text. We have a lot of other things that will come up. Um, among them, ancient warfare um, and uh, anything else related. And I, I don't want to talk too much without getting to the text. So let's go with the text. Um, uh, I'm going to read parts of it, uh, and I will highlight certain parts of it. It starts out with the word echa. And you see that little line after it? It tells you, stop for a minute after that. Echa serves as not only the first word of the first verse, but as a kind of introduction to the whole book. And, and there are other chapters that also begin with that. It's an explanation, exclamation of woe, alas. Um, it is... Um, let me see, how shall I say this? It signals the, the discourse of lament, 
chapter two and four also begin with it. Um, it's, it's a sign of despair, woe. Um, and, it, and what you're gonna have here is the change, the way it was before and the way it was now. You're gonna have a lot of that in, in this book in general. Um, let me say another thing because um, if you look at the way the lines are set up here, and you look at the punctuation in the Masoretic text, uh, it's a little different. And I'm gonna follow the Masoretic text, which uh, would be, alas, lonely sits the city once great with people. Um, uh, the, the JPS had taken some, some liberties here. Alas, how she sits lonely, the great city, the, the city great with people. She is like a widow. She has become a widow. Rabati bagoyim, sarati bamnidot, she that was great among nations, the princess among states, is become what JPS calls a thrall or forced labor. Um, so JPS has rearranged the some of the lines there. Um, this obviously is about Jerusalem, but notice that the word Jerusalem doesn't occur and it won't occur for quite a number of verses, but it's obvious that this is ha'ir, ha'ir rabati am, what, that once was full of people. Now she sits like an almana, like a widow. Now a widow has a number of associations. The first association you get in this context is especially with Yashva Badad, she's sitting alone. Uh, she doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a family. She's all alone. Uh, widows in, in the Bible are um, need protection because they don't have a male in their family to, to their husband to protect them. Um, who is Jerusalem's husband? That is God. And later we will see, and, and we have in the prophets, the idea that, um, that Israel or Jerusalem is an unfaithful wife, but that's not here. Here she is a widow. She has lost her husband. Um, she used to be a great city. Now she's a vassal. She's forced labor, lamas. She's, she's become nothing. And indeed, that's what's happening. What's being lamented here is the loss of independence of Judah. Judah is now part of the Babylonian empire. Um, it, is, it is at the beck and call of Babylonia. It has to pay Babylonia tribute in both goods and in the service of the people who were taken into captivity. Um, let, let me go on. The, the feminine image, the personification of Jerusalem as a woman is going to continue. And indeed, cities are often personified as women. Um, she is crying at night. Um, her cheeks are wet with tears. She has no one to comfort her. A mourner needs comforters. And the idea that there is no one to comfort her is repeated numerous times. Um, and therefore her mourning can't be assuaged. She remains in mourning. Um, who are supposed to be her comforters? There is none to comfort her of all her friends. JPS has translated Ohaveha, her friends, call uh, Reeha, all her allies. Uh, Ohaveha also means her loved ones. And um, there's kind of, as you have in poetry, multiple associations uh, through images and metaphors. Um, all of her previous allies, that is the other countries uh, that she used to be able to call upon for support have abandoned her. There's no one to comfort her. There's no one to help her. 
But ohaveha and reyeha also suggest lovers. And that's the idea that you have in the, in the prophets. All her former lovers that she prostituted herself with also have abandoned her. So there's both a negative and a positive image here. And the widow image starts to kind of fade into maybe she's not so, um, maybe we shouldn't feel sorry for her because she did something to get herself into this situation. The idea that Jerusalem sinned will be expressed um, outright uh, and it's part of the explanation for the destruction, it is the explanation for the destruction. But the tragedy outweighs the sin. Uh, the sin will be mentioned, but the emphasis is on what happened to Jerusalem. Uh, let's go on. Um, Chaya, move down a little bit, if you can. Great. Um, okay, verse three. Galta Yehuda. Judah has gone into exile. Uh, that is, the people of Judah have been deported. This, this was um, something that actually began with the Assyrian Empire. Uh, that is the deportation of captives who were conquered in a, in a war. It doesn't mean that every single person was deported. The Book of Kings tells us there were actually waves of deportation. Um, there are good reasons. It's actually a very smart strategy for a conquering nation. By deporting, uh, especially the upper levels of society, the leadership, uh, the rich people, uh, the, the movers and shakers, what you do, first of all, is diminish the possibility of rebellion of the conquered city or, or country. Uh, you also use those people, the captives become part of the booty of the conquering nation. Uh, we actually have uh, records of Judeans in Babylonia, in, written in Akkadian and cuneiform documents. Um, they were not enslaved in, in the sense that we think in America of slavery. Uh, they were settled in places um, but they served the needs of the Babylonian government. They, they engaged in private enterprise also, but um, they could be used to work on building projects in Babylonia to settle lands that needed settlement. In other words, they added to the population strength of the Babylonian empire. Um, in the case of the Judean deportees, they were settled together in communities, and that's how we have these um, records of them. Um, in the case of northern Israel, who were deported by the Assyrians roughly 200 years earlier, we have no records of them. We don't know what happened to them. They became the 10 lost tri tribes. Let me get back to the text. Judah has gone into exile. Um, let me look at the words um, instead of being independent, um, she was settled among the nations and she lost her own homeland. She found no resting place, no home of her own, no security. Um, she found, uh, all her pursuers overtook her in the narrow places. Um, this indeed is, is what's happening um, in the Babylonian conquest and destruction and deportation. But there's sort of a hint of the Egyptian period when, when Israel was, were slaves in Egypt um, when she also did not have a homeland. That was before she had a homeland. This is after she lost her homeland. And Bena Mitzarim, which is perfectly good Hebrew, sort of echoes the word Mitzrayim, Egypt. So th th there's something about this verse that brings to mind, although it's, it's not overt at all, the idea that now they are going to be as they were in Egypt long ago. 
And in fact, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, second Isaiah, the prophet of the exile, who gives comfort about the return, compares the return to Israel after the Babylonian exile to the exodus from Egypt. That's, that's the model for, for the return. Here we have a um, description of, of uh, Zion, Jerusalem. She was a widow. She was mourning before, crying with no comforters. Here, the roads of Zion are in mourning. They're desolate. This used to be the place where people came to the temple, where all of Israel, or by that time, all of Judah, came in, in, in hordes on festival days. Here, nobody comes. All the, the gates, the entrances to the city are desolate. The priests are sighing. They don't have anything to do. They're, they're out of a job. But to load new goats. Uh, the maidens, um, they often are the ones who sang laments also. Uh, and and uh, Zion is, is desolate. It's, it's bitter for her. So we go back and forth between the people and the city. The city is in mourning. The people have been exiled. Kol uh, Rosh, All the... Um, Kaya, you have to move down a little bit. Um, Sorry about that. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, the enemies here are the masters, um, and they're enjoying themselves. They're they're at ease. They like the fact that God did this. And here we have the mention of the sins. Al rov pesha The Lord afflicted her because of her many sins. Um, and it's not here they've used the word for little children. It's not only the people, but to, to use the children is even more heartrending than to say the people. Um, and you see the sins are mentioned, but the emphasis is on the sorrow and the tragedy that resulted. Um, all the glory has gone from, from Zion. Um, her leaders were like stags who basically ran around finding no pasture, losing their strength, being pursued. You can almost see like animals being pursued, tired out, weak from hunger, etc. Um, in the next verse, Zachrayu Shalayim Yimei Anya. Uh, Jerusalem, in, in, in the days of her trouble, Jerusalem remembered all, all the good times. Um, Yemei Kedem, the good old days. It, it's going to recur again uh, later in the book. Uh, it means the time before all this bad stuff happened. Um, and now is the time when it fell in the, in the hand of the enemy with no one to help uh, and, and enemies laughed and gloated. Um, there are two types of witnesses to Jerusalem's tragedy. One is the enemy. And if you notice, uh, the enemy is generally not given a lot of credit for this. The credit or discredit um, goes to God. In other words, the enemy is, is, is not strong enough to cause this if God did not will it. This is the theology behind the explanation. Jerusalem sinned, Judah sinned, God got angry and punished them. The enemy gloats. The enemy is the vehicle that God uses for the destruction, but it says the enemy doesn't have full agency itself. Um, the other witnesses are the passers-by, uh, not the people actually attacking Judah, but those 
the neighbors who see what's going on. Sometimes they mock Jerusalem uh, and sometimes they're called upon to feel sorry for Jerusalem or to help Jerusalem. Um, okay, let's let's go on. How are we doing time-wise here? Chet chata Yerushalayim, alkein lenida hayata. Again, the idea of sin. Jerusalem sinned. The hard word here is lenida, and uh, here. Uh, I'm going to read you some some things because there's a lot of comments on on this word. Uh, first of all, uh, in verse 17, you're going to have the what looks like the same word, which but it is not. This is is in Hebrew written nun yud dalid hey, as opposed to the word nida without a yud and with a Dagesh in, in the Dalit. Um, the question is, are they the same word or not? Is this talking about a menstruant, a woman in the Da? Um, I don't think so. Uh, JPS doesn't think so. Um, and um, there are several reasons that I would say that. Um, I translate it as banished. Um, but there are three lines of interpretation beginning in medieval times with the Moforshim uh, up to modern times. They're all grammatically possible. They all have some difficulty. And they're all sort of supported by the context. Um, the first understands the root as nun vav dalid, which is most probably correct. Now that root has two meanings. One is to move or shake the head uh, or to mock or deride, which makes sense. Uh, the phrase would mean that Jerusalem has become an object of derision. The second possibility is take, to take the root nun dalit from wanderer, to, um, like Navana, somebody who wanders around. Um, um, and um, Ibn Ezra even has both of these possibilities, and you can almost choose which one you want. Rashi favors wanderer. Ibn Ezra opts for derision. I chose the idea of wandering because the consequence of sin is less likely to be derision and more likely to be banishment or, or exile. Uh, the root uh, it recalls uh, the story of Cain, who, who, because of his sin, had to be a wanderer. Um, he's like the prototype of the exilic person. Um, but to be sure, the following phrase speaks of the lack of respect which Jerusalem is treated. So derision could also be a possibility. The third interpretation takes the meaning to be a menstruum, that is, in a state of ritual impurity. But because it has a yud, um, it's less likely to be that. However, there's the mention of nakedness and impurity in the following lines, uh, which sort of remind you of, of a menstruant. Um, so it's possible that all three of these are somewhere in there. But I think not. When we get to verse 17, I'll talk more about the kind of purity or impurity that is associated with nita. But um, let, let me wait till I get there. Let's just take this is, um, as, as not being a menstruant, but as being disgraced or exiled. Okay, let, let's go on to verse 9. Hiya. I see that they have it all there. Uh, Chaya, can you move? Yeah. Okay. Tumata b'shuleha. Tuma is, I don't like the word uncleanness. I like impurity better because purity and impurity don't have anything to do with dirt. Dirt is not impure. 
Um, so it's not that, that she's dirty. Uh, it's that she's somehow impure. Um, and she's impure, I would argue, not because she's menstruating, but because of her sin, of what she did, um, which caused ritual impurity. Um, she gave no thought to her third future. Again, the idea that Ein Menachem La, she has no comfort. And here, up till now, it's been a third person speaker. I would not call him the poet because the poet is not necessarily the speaker in a, in a poem, but the speaker is an anonymous person. But here, um, Jerusalem utters a few words. Later in the chapter, Jerusalem is going to be the main speaker of the, of the last part of, of the chapter. But here she is calling on God to see her misery. Uh, the enemy jeers. The enemy has made itself big. Uh, and what the enemy did was, Yado parash tsar al kol machmadeha. Uh, the foe has laid hands on everything dear to her. That, 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 that word, everything dear, also um, has multiple associations. All her treasures, all the people, but probably from what follows, uh, her sanctuary. In other words, Jerusalem's the dearest thing in, in the most precious thing in Jerusalem is the temple. And here the enemy came into it. Asher Sivita, which God, which you commanded, should not come in. Um, entrance to the temple was not permitted to anyone. Here the enemy, the Babylonians, have basically invaded the holy space of Jerusalem. They have desecrated it. Their very presence desecrates it, even without them burning it down and taking its, its uh, furnishings out. Uh, let's go on. Uh, Chaya? Um, okay. Um, call, call ama um, here is the result of the, um, the siege, uh, the starvation. I'll talk more about that also soon. Um, all the inhabitants sigh. Mevakshim lechem. Um, they look for food. Um, the, the next phrase is, is also a tricky one uh, with different interpretations. JPS says they have bartered their treasures for food. Again, the word is Mahmadehem. Um, they're precious things. Um, it can be that they took all their money and their jewelry and their gold and they used it to buy food. That makes perfect sense. Because in a, in a famine, in a siege which causes famine, uh, prices go up enormously. So, you know, a potato can cost $1,000 or something like that. That's one level of meaning. Another level of meaning is that they took the, their dear ones, their children, um, and, and bartered them for food. Now here, I wouldn't say bartered. The word is natan. They gave them for food. And there are two interpretations to that. One is that they sold their children to, in order to get food. In other words, somebody who could afford to buy their children uh, and use them to work on their whatever. Uh, but that's not likely in a... Um, in a um, time of, of siege when nobody had anything, they didn't have food and they, you know, they didn't have a need for, for any servants. So the, the interpretation that I like is that they gave their children, not new Mahmadehim, to other people, hoping that the other people could feed them. And this reminds me of what happened in the Holocaust also. When people would give their children to 
non-Jews to other families, to richer families, to families that weren't being deported uh, immediately, hoping that at least they could save the children, even if they couldn't save themselves. So that's a possibility that I like to think about in, in this verse. Um, again, Jerusalem is talking, Adonai v'habita ki ha'iti zolela. Zolela, how abject, and there's a note there on the, on the JPS, uh, Zolela also has the idea of glutton, but if you understand glutton, you have to understand it very ironically because they're starving. Um, uh, but I think I think I would go with JPS here. How abject I become. Lo aleichem, call over derech. Here we have now the passers-by, the neighbors, the other witnesses, not the enemy. Uh, may it never befall you, you onlookers. Habita uh, Look and see. Is there any pain as great as my pain uh, um, that was dealt to me, that God dealt out to me, God afflicted me, on the day of God's anger. God was angry with his with his people. When we get to chapter two, you'll see how angry God was with his people. Um, but but that's that's again, you have theology and poetry, emotion of all ranges mixed in together here. Mimarom Shalach Eish Batsmotai. He is God from on high. God sent down fire um, and he spread a net. Both fire and nets are weapons used in war. Fire, indeed, to burn um, down cities and temples and things like that. Nets to entrap soldiers, uh, the, the way you would trap an animal, but they use them for people too. So it's, it's, it's God who is, is the enemy here. God is using the weapons of war against Jerusalem. Heshivani um, Achor, he threw me backwards, threw me over. Um, he left me Shomema, desolate, forlorn, Kol Hayom Dava, in in constant misery. Um, let's go on. Uh, this, the the words are hard here, and I I don't want to take a lot of time, um, but the idea is. The yoke of my offenses is bound fast. Um, and it was a yoke on, on a person's neck is a sign of subservience to bear the yoke of the conqueror. But here um, is it, Jerusalem, Judah is, is yoked with, with uh, their, their sins. Their sins are weighing them down. Uh, it saps their strength. Um, they they can't withstand it. Um, uh, and again, it's God who has done this because of the sins. So they, they are they are admitting their sins. Um, what would the alternative be? Uh, to say that an enemy is stronger than Judah is something a modern person could say, but. But to say that in an ancient context means that the gods of Babylonia are stronger than the God of Israel. That's just theologically unacceptable in the Bible. So if something like this happens, it must be that God caused it and that God had a reason to cause it. Um, so th they never leave that theology. But again, as I say, they want to emphasize the despair uh, of, of the destruction. Um, let me just add here that uh, I said this was an unprecedented thing. To most people in Jerusalem, it was an unthinkable thing. God had chosen Jerusalem, set his temple there, appointed a Davidic dynasty to rule over Judah forever. You know, he didn't say that we're going to be just the prophets warned that this was going to happen. But the average Judean 
thought this could never happen. It, it's just like saying to Americans, oh, America is going to be conquered. It's not within our, it's not within our memory, without our, our experience to, to think that that could actually happen. And, and you have to think that the people of Judah also had that mentality. And so when this happened, despite the prophet's warnings, um, they, they were totally unprepared and they had to process it. And Lamentations is helping to process it. Uh, let's go on um, to verse 15. Um, the Lord in my midst has rejected all my heroes. Um, oh, the, the, the end of this is, is, is very moving. Gat darach Adonai leave tulat bat Yehuda. The tulat bat Yehuda is a, another epithet for Jerusalem, like bat Zion. The tulat bat Yehuda, poor, poor little Judah. Gat darach as in a wine press, the Lord stomped on Judah. And what, what, what do you see when somebody stomps on grapes to get the juice to make wine? You see the red liquid pouring out. What do you see when God stomps on Judah, the blood pouring out? This is, this is to me an amazing metaphor. It's just done in a couple of words. But if you think about it, it's it's very graphic. Al Ela Ani Bochia, Aini Aini Yodamai, crying. Bochia, we had this idea also at the beginning of the chapter. Bochia uh, doesn't mean to weep. Weep means liquid moisture comes out. Bochia means to utter a cry. I'm crying out. And the tears are coming out of my eyes. Again, the idea that there's no one to comfort me. It, a, a comforter is very far away. Someone who will restore me. Because um, that's what comforters are supposed to do. Help you keep living. How can Jerusalem keep living if it has no one to comfort her? Uh, my children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Again, uh, the idea that there is no comforter um, and um, that God commanded this against Jacob. Jacob stands for Israel, or in this case, Judah. Um, here we have what I mentioned before. Now here, if you, if you know Hebrew, you can see that this is uh, uh, written differently without the Yud, but with the Dagesh. And this indeed um, it has to do with Nida of menstruation. And I, again, don't like the unclean thing. Um, uh, let me let me read you this because it'll be more efficient if I do that. Um, the, 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 there are two kinds of impurity in the Bible. There is uh, ritual impurity. And it was a menstruant is ritually impure. And there are other things that make a person ritually impure, like coming in contact with a, with a corpse. It means you cannot go to the temple if you're ritually impure. Um, there's also moral impurity, and moral impurity is a lot more severe. For that, the land coughs you up, pushes you out. Um, generally speaking, menstruation is not a sin, okay? It's a natural uh, fact. Um, it, it, it makes you ritually impure. Uh, sometimes it's used metaphorically for, for being morally impure. Um, and, and so it might be saying here that Jerusalem is, be calling, uh, is calling Jerusalem 
a defiled land. Um, and she, that she's impure. Um, the way I understand it, it is that um, just as no man is supposed to come near a woman in Nida, so Jerusalem being a woman in Nida, there's no one to come to comfort her. No one wants to get near her. No one has to, wants to have anything to do with her. Um, and that's a very different usage of, of what we had uh, earlier in, in verse 8. Here it, it really is Nida. Uh, Can I ask a question? Can uh, I ask a yeah, question? sure. Is this, a, thank you. Is this a sort of roundabout way of getting to the idea of exile and banishment or does that other root meaning in which the Nida means banishment, is that related? to the reason that we call a menstruant. No, I, th I think there are two different roots because Nida is from Nun Dalad Dalad. Uh, it, it, uh, it would be a different root. Um, oh, okay. But, you know, but but verse eight, there, there's been a ton of interpretations of verse eight because of the context also. Um, here, here it's clearer. Here there, there's no argument about, about what the word means. It's just how you want to understand how it's being used and in what situation it's being used. Uh, but but the so point the fact, that, mm -hmm, go ahead. So the, so the fact the the association of banishment with a with a nida meaning menstruant is a coincidence. No, they didn't banish menstruating women in ancient right. Israel. Right. Yeah. No, I mean <laughs> like more of, of distance. Of distance. To a tent in the in the desert or something. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> no I meant uh, distancing. Distancing. Well, it's not distancing from her. They remain part of society. They just, right. you know, couldn't have sex with with their husbands, and they couldn't, you know, come to the temple and sit on the same chairs. Yeah. And, right. Right. So, it, but but it's ritual impurity. The distinction I want to make, which most people don't make, uh, and that's why I don't like the word unclean, because again, dirt is not impure ritually or or morally. But there are but there there are different kinds of impurity. We're not a society that relates to impurity. Okay, we relate to cleanliness uh, and germs and bacteria and stuff like that. But but ancient Israel and a lot of ancient Near Eastern society related to to religious purity and impurity. Uh, so it's a hard concept for us to to get a handle on. And it's true that nida sometimes is used in the in in the moral sense, but but literally. Anida is not morally impure. There's no, there's no wrongdoing associated with that. It's just, you know, in that situation, the woman is ritually impure. But here, it, I think it has to do with just nobody wants to be near her. Not that she was exiled, but here it's Ein Menachemla. Um, you know, she, Zion is spreading out her hand. She's beseeching, come help me, come comfort me. But no, you know, everybody turns their back on her. I, I think that's that's yeah. the idea of this verse. Okay, okay. thank you. Uh, yes, you can ask it at any time. Uh, let's go on. Sadiku Adonai. God is right. Uh, when it, we, we can't blame God. We can blame God because look what he did to us. But but he's right. He was right to do it. Kipihu Mariti. It was I. I went against, I rebelled against his mouth, his commandments. Um, hear you, all your peoples, uh, again, the idea of pain, the word machov, pain has come several times. Here's the idea of exile. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. Um, it's not only the young ones, of course, the old ones went too, but, but again, these, this was, it's always more moving to, to talk about the young ones, the future of, of the country. Um, so the, the captivity is the result of sin, um, and, and that's caused by God. Again, God is the, 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 the force behind what happens. Karati Lamachovai. Hema Rimuni. 
um, I cried out to my friends. Again, it's 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 my those who love me. Um, uh, the the priests and the elders. These are the important people in society. They are, you know, expiring. Uh, they too have no food. Um, nobody nobody comes to help. Um, and therefore, if you notice, the different um, parts of the population have been mentioned, not usually all together, but throughout the chapter, we've seen children, we've seen elders, we've seen young people, we've seen uh, leaders, etc. So all parts of society are affected, um, but the poem kind of spreads them out differently. Uh, let's go on. Oh, I'm out of time. Let, let me try to finish this chapter. Um, Chaya, move, move us down a couple of more verses. Uh, Karat, okay, uh, verse 20. Again, a call to God from Jerusalem. Oh, I forgot to tell you that if you notice, Jerusalem has been speaking in, the, in these verses. Um, uh, see, Lord, the, the distress I'm in, uh, May I Hamar Maru, my insides are all twisted up. My heart is turned over. In other words, it's kind of a graphic way of expressing emotion and feeling and anguish. Um, uh, outside Shikla Kamave. Um, outside here means outside the walls of Jerusalem where the fighting is going on. The battle is fought inside, outside. Inside is where the people are starving because of the siege. Outside, the sword bereaves. Inside, inside the city, there is death. Um, uh, verse 21, when they heard how I was sighing, there was none to comfort me. You're getting used to the, these ideas already. All my foes heard my plight uh, and exalted. In other words, my enemies, of course, are very happy to, to see what's happening to me. Um, at the end, we're going to have an idea that we're going to have at the end of several chapters. And that is... I wish that my enemies would suffer the same thing that I'm suffering now. Um, you brought on the day that you threatened, oh, let them become like me. Let all their evil doings come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me for all my transgressions. Because my sighs are great and my heart is sick. I was this this idea it sounds like, well, I just want to get revenge on my enemies. Um, I think I think there's a deeper sense of this. It's not pure revenge. It's things have to be put right again. The world order has been disrupted. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God, you have to turn it back now, make the enemy pay, because even though I sin, the enemies were wrong to do this, and therefore they deserve punishment as well. Uh, and it's a way, as I said, a number of the chapters end. Okay, um, uh, you can send questions in the chat, and Chaya will make sure that I get them. Um, I'm I have to move a little more quickly next time through some of them, so I'll probably have to skip some verses. Uh, if you want me to emphasize any particular things, please uh, let me know that. And finally, I ask Chaya to put in the chat um, something I wrote for the Torah.com about um, um, the siege and, and something, something I wrote for Tisha B'Av but um, I thought it would fill you in something about what it's like to be in a, in a siege because we'll get those descriptions here also. And I will fill in uh, some other you know, background as, as we need to go. Okay, thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Professor Berlin. I've just put that link in the chat so everyone can save that. Um, or, can, yeah, or, you know, open that up um, in the next minute or two. Well, I, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Professor Berlin. Thank you to everyone who joined. Uh, we can, if anyone wants to take a moment to stay to ask any questions, we can take it. Uh, Professor Berlin, if you're I, available I, for another minute or two, we can give fine. a moment for that. Okay, so speak now or forever hold your peace, et cetera. All that. Yeah, you'll get a chance um, next week too. Or, or yeah, you know it. <laughs> Speak now or hold your feet for a week or get in touch by email or something. There's actually a lot of options. So, yeah, all is not lost. Um, okay. Um, I'm going to just close this up if anything goes up. Meanwhile, that'll be great. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, uh, thank you to Professor Berlin. And if anybody, uh, this is one of 10 classes that we're currently offering to the public um, in our summer's month. So, you can check those other ones up out, sorry, at uh, 5783.drisha.org slash summer. We've got really wonderful classes going on, some classes more similar to this one for about an hour in the evenings, uh, and some afternoon classes that are longer and go more intensively into a topic. Really, really wonderful things going on, so please check that out. Um, and looking forward to seeing you all again next week or sooner. Thank you again to Professor Berlin, Berlin and see you next week. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye.